Thanks for checking out the podcast. Very much appreciated as always. We had about 842 guests on the show this week. That's it's not actually true. That'd be too many guests for one radio show. But it felt really, really close. We had a lot, uh, and we're going to put them all on the podcast because everybody was really good. Started with Adam Amin of ESPN Radio. Then we had Grant Paulson talking Caps, Rich Tandler talking Redskins, Keely Devin, who was awesome and her debut on the show, talking about the Wizards, Reiner Sabin talking about the Alabama players the Redskins took, and then Dave Jagler talking Nats. All of that in the podcast, and then my segment to close the show, which had some thoughtful stuff, and then the most thoughtless mon- just monstrosity of... It basically was like this sentence. Hoffman Show on a Sunday morning. We head up to Boston now. Adam Amin of ESPN Radio joins me to discuss the Celtics and Wizards who get going in game one of their second round series today. Adam, good morning, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great, brother. Good to talk to you as always. So what to you, as you prepare for this series, what is the most interesting storyline or matchup to you? You know, I, I'm still looking, and I mean, you know, it's funny, Craig, you and I were kind of talking about it the other day, just texting back and forth about the potential of this series, and I still look at Avery Bradley against John Wall as maybe the most important matchup of the series. I think that's where the series in Chicago uh, really shifted for Boston and, and the Bulls when Avery Bradley was really spending most of his time guarding Jimmy Butler, and we saw how well he did. I think the number was something like 34% Jimmy Butler shot when Avery Bradley was his primary defender. So uh, I feel like that's still probably the biggest matchup of the series. And obviously, you know, with with the funeral storyline, you know, the the dressed in black storyline that we saw in, in the middle games between these two teams this year, the season series kind of playing out the way it did. The games at Boston were pretty tight, you know, both inside of 10 points uh, with, with the Celtics winning both of them at home. You know, a lot of this stuff just sticks out. It's hard not to notice all of it. And you see how the trends kind of played out. And I still think that's probably going to be the most important matchup. John Wall has a tendency to not shoot as well on the road that's why his game six performance against atlanta was so crucial because he was outstanding scored 42 at eight assists and shot the ball very well that's not something he typically did this season on the road so uh i think that's still probably the biggest matchup that bradley against wall and then i think that just the just the chippiness that developed in the in really i would say the eight games the last two seasons in the regular season between these two adam amin of espn radio with me craig hoffman here on the fan the wall matchup definitely is interesting because they, they were the Wizards smacked the Celtics without Bradley. Now with Bradley back, that, that changes because I think he's outside of Kawhi, maybe the best perimeter defender in the league. But it does also beg the question, if, if Bradley's guarding wall, where does Isaiah Thomas hide? Do you have any inclination on how that matchup winds up playing out, where Isaiah Thomas is defensively? Because I think you know if the Wizards can take advantage of that, that seriously shifts the series in their favor. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how they're going to guard Bradley Beal, you know, because and, and Thomas, I, I don't want to call him a defensive liability, but I think a lot of people in Chicago while we were watching the series kept saying, well, go after Thomas, go after Thomas. So I feel like they, you know, at least from the casual observer's eye, maybe even beyond casual, a lot of people just look at Isaiah Thomas and say he's not going to guard you as hard on the defensive end of the floor because he's going to save so much 
of what he does for the offensive end. So that's not an unfair assessment. I don't think I don't think he's a bad defender, but I do think that's a relatively fair assessment. I think if you're going to go after one of the guys in the backcourt, it's got to be Isaiah Thomas. Now, if he's going to guard John Wall, that'll be interesting to me at various points because I do feel like he might need to chase Bradley Beal a little bit. So could we see Avery Bradley or Bradley Beal? I don't think that's out of the question, but uh, I do feel like the main match is probably going to be in Beal and Thomas. And, and if Thomas has to spend all of his time chasing Bradley Beal at one end of the floor, how is that going to affect him on the offensive end? So I think that's going to be something that Boston's going to have to work out on. Uh, I could see Marcus Smart, obviously, when he comes into the game off the bench going after Beal or Wall. And Smart is an excellent defender, and 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 I don't think that you're going to find too many guys outside of Marcus Smart who work harder than he does on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, I watched a game earlier this year when Boston beat Golden State, when the Warriors were in kind of their rough patch without Kevin Durant to start, and they were struggling offensively. But part of that was because Marcus Smart played one of the best defensive games I've seen. He chased Clay Thompson and Steph Curry around, you know, for four minutes and and put together an incredible defensive effort. So. Uh, I think there are a couple of other adjustments that Brad Stevens could make, and that's something that he's starting to do in now his fourth year as the head coach in the NBA. Yeah, he's remarkable at his job. Uh, when you have you've now been doing the NBA for for almost a full year, and obviously you've been in some amazing college basketball, college football atmospheres, uh, NFL atmospheres uh, in your career, but uh, now having done the NBA on the radio for ESPN this year, um, I don't know how many games you've done in Boston or how many total arenas you've been able to hit. But how, how does the atmosphere in Boston compare to others, and, and what are the Wizards in for in terms of atmosphere the first couple of games of this series? Yeah, it's not, it's going to be intense, especially when you get to the second round. Uh, I do think the Washington-Boston storyline and the chippiness will add to that, that, that fire a little bit, a little bit of fuel for that. Um, but, I mean, Boston, I, I was there when, when Paul Pierce made his final return to TD Garden, and you just felt with the buzz and the light that day. Isaiah Thomas had a big game against the Clippers in the fourth quarter, so you kind of felt what the buzz was like. And over the course of the last week, uh, I was in Portland, I was in Golden State, I was in Utah uh, for playoff games, and the atmosphere just changes. And you know, I was talking with Mike Breen, who will call the game on uh, ABC today, and he's the lead voice for the NBA on ABC and ESPN. We were kind of chatting about it because – it was my first playoff games last week, and he's been doing this for gosh, 25 years at this point. And he was just telling me how he, even he feels after a quarter of a century of doing NBA playoff games, there's always a different buzz in each arena. Because if you're one of the eight teams in a conference that's made the playoffs, you're going to have a decent atmosphere because the fans there have something to cheer about and they have something to care about when you get into the playoff atmosphere. So there is something different about it. There's a different buzz. I was talking about it a lot last week. It just different from the, from the second you kind of stepped into the arena. Adam, uh, if you see Mike today, tell him I say hello. Have a great call. Uh, look forward to, to hearing you uh, if I'm driving around and, and hearing the highlights for sure. Uh, if I get a chance to watch Mike and, and the crew on TV, have a great call, man. And then hopefully uh, as the assignments come out later in the series, you'll be down here and we can, we can see each other in person. Always good to catch up. Sounds like a plan, my friend. That first period was it felt it felt like the caps were on the power play the entire time because they spent the entire time in the offensive zone it seemed like they were just getting opportunities left and right and they don't score as that period comes to an end are you thinking oh no yeah essentially uh, but i think you were because you felt like what else can they do how can they play better than that what 20 minutes are they going to have in their chamber tonight that's going to be more productive than that and it didn't result in a goal on net. And so 
you know, the Capitals theoretically could, Craig, go into their locker room and as they're in the dressing room, sit there and say, well, we got them right where we want them. We dominated. But oftentimes in hockey, what happens is you start doubting yourself and wondering, you know, what went wrong? Why didn't this work? Why didn't we score? And, you know, contrarily in the Pittsburgh stalls, I think in the locker room, they're thinking that's as good as they got. They just threw their best punches time after time. They had two power plays. We had zero. So, you know, we got power plays coming. They're going to even this thing out. And it's a zero-zero game. So, we withstood their flurry, and, and flurry stood on his head and our net, and we're going to be fine. And so I think there was some concern after that first period, but if you're a Caps fan, you had to at least be optimistic about the fact that they dominated. And they probably played at least three, maybe four of the six periods better than Pittsburgh, but their road two kind of inexcusably leaving the Verizon Center going to Pittsburgh, and it's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's interesting, too, that kind of the mindset – I think of the fans, um, because they've been beat up so much over the years, the mindset coming out of that first period is probably more of, oh, no, we just blew our opportunity than we are dominating and it is about it is just a matter of time till the dam breaks. Do you think that negative kind of mentality exists at all in that room among some of the players who have been there for a long enough time? I think it's a great question, and I certainly think that it probably does. I mean, the one thing I'd say, though, is there's plenty of guys on this team that haven't been here long sure. enough for that feeling to haunt them. I mean, Kevin Shattenkirk's been here for a handful of weeks now. He's didn't, didn't stop him the, the from playing of, uh, poorly. Of so that's of, good. of problems in St. Louis getting deep into the playoffs. So, I mean, I think a lot of guys have experienced it, but I don't think the problem is in the locker room per se necessarily. I mean, you saw Alex Ovechkin has been here longer than anybody getting his bench pumped up after they scored a goal to kind of get back into the game last night. Justin Williams has three cups. He was talking a lot in the player only meeting when they, kept the doors closed and wouldn't let the media in last night. Nicholas Backstrom has been around the block. I don't think the players got down on themselves at, at zero zero. I think it was after four to one. Cause what, what happens is inevitably you, you start thinking, you know, what else can we do here? It, it seems like, if, and I'm thinking of as a caps player, every mistake we make results in the, as the puck in the back of our net, whereas they don't make as many egregious or glaring errors, but, it doesn't seem like all of our hard work gets rewarded. And when you start thinking like that, it's self-defeating. So they can't. They're too veteran to do that. And if that's the case, shame on them because you know, they've just been through too many of these series and games. They were down 2-1 a round ago. It's, it's, that's not an excuse. It can't be an excuse. This isn't a young team. that They've got to figure it out. Grant Paulson, of course, Grant and Danny here on The Fan. Also, CSN's coverage of Capitals hockey, Capitals overtime, Capitals pre- and post-game, Capitals everything on CSN. Um, And the thing is, too, about 4-1, they made it 4-2 relatively quickly, gave themselves a little bit of hope, but then 4-2 became 5-2, and that was the end of that. Um, Holpe just does not seem to have the same level of performance here in the playoffs that he had during the regular season. Um, Why is it that... I I mean, this seems like a a very simplistic, dumb question, but I don't know how else to ask it. Why is it that in the playoffs he has not been the same as in the regular season? So that's the million-dollar question. I think it's a great question. And if, you know, the Capitals had the answer, they'd be in better shape. But know this, your observation's 100% correct, just not statistically. I mean, that's what they're talking about right now at their facility as they get ready to head to Pittsburgh couple of things here. So first of all, I think the Penguins have a great plan against him. Four of the six goals in this series were scored from the same half of the ice, basically to his short side. And and I think they've found a flaw. Every goaltender has a couple of areas where they're particularly susceptible. And the Caps are still trying to figure out how to beat Flurry. 
And the Penguins, who have faced Holpe so much, including in that 8-7 shootout this year where he got benched in that game, I think have a book on him that works. So that, so that's one thing. I also think he just hasn't played particularly well. And it's not that he's not preparing. He clearly, he's working. And it's not that he goes into these games without confidence. I think he you know, mentally has, has come a long way over the last few years. I just think that you know you go case by case with it. Uh, one of the goals last night, the Kessel goal that beat him above his uh, glove side shoulder. You know he was probably you know just slightly uh, further back in the net than he would have liked to have been, and that that caught some jersey and got over his shoulder. You'd like to see him be a little bit more aggressive, come out further from the net. The softest goal last night that bothered me the most was the third goal, the Gensel yep. strike, where he yep. gave up a lot of net, and I thought he was cheating. I don't know what you thought, but basically for the pass. On a two-on-one rush, right. and that was and I the, think he had to decide to he had help. It didn't make any sense. I agree with you. I mean, he had Niskanen, who plays those two-on-ones better than anybody, by the way, back, and and he's got to know that Niskanen's going to lay out and make sure that pass doesn't get through. And if he does get beat on a beautiful pass, that's a lot more forgivable on a two-on-one rush than getting beat, giving up you know a big chunk of the net, basically a clear sight line to the to the light for Gensel coming down the other side of the ice. So. I thought that was just a bad goal. Now, I supported sitting him. I said before the third period I would have gone to Grubauer. Saying full well, Craig, I'd go right back to Holtby in game three. But the problem was it was about getting saves. It was about him not playing well, not momentum or necessarily, or not that the Caps were going to get more chances because really they weren't going to play any better offensively. And then Grubauer wasn't comfortable. I mean, he didn't look good at all, I didn't think. At one point, the Penguins scored on both of those goalies five times in six shots, which is just preposterous and doesn't happen, but it was a nightmare. I mean, it was just, it was a, a kind of a sum of all fears kind of game for the Capitals. They're down two games to nothing. They played a hell of a first period, had nothing to show for it. And after that, the wheels came off the wagon. So here's how it goes now. Very simply, Pittsburgh's a good team. I think the Capitals also think they're a really good team. You got to go there and, and probably take two, and then you're right back in the series. Easier said than done, but all you can do is worry about that first shift and that first period and Next thing you know, it's a 2-1 series, and you're chipping back away. But but they can't afford, obviously, to fall down 3-1 coming back to D.C. No doubt about it. Uh, Grant, appreciate the time this morning. Always fun talking caps with you. Um, I, we'll, we'll just save your, your Redskins draft thoughts and your, your caps or your Nats thoughts uh, with the Aiton injury uh, for your show coming up tomorrow. Uh, you guys have plenty to talk about all week. Appreciate the time this morning on the caps, and we'll, we'll continue watching you on TV, too. Yeah, what a difference a weekend makes, by the yeah. way, with the Eaton injury and, yeah. and the Caps failing here on two games at home to the Penguins. Just a tough couple of days, but hopefully the Wizards can right the ship today. Let's go, Zardos! <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you, buddy. Thank you. See you, pal. With you on 106.7 The Fan. Rich Chandler writes about the Redskins for CSN Mid-Atlantic. And he joins me now. Rich, good morning, my friend. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, a lot of our draft uh, slash Redskins discussion this morning has been uh, along the lines of the sentiment that the Redskins may actually have some of this stuff figured out, that maybe they are not the complete uh, circus show that we thought they were when they fired Scott McLuhan. When you look at the state of the franchise right now and, and factor in how they did over the last three days, how would you say the state of the franchise is right now? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd say it's better. I, I think you know one thing that we heard in as soon as the season ended in January 
it was that they had to make the defense better. Now, you know, you haven't been around here all that long, but I'm sure you've been around long enough to hear it before, where they talk about, you know, getting this aspect better or that aspect better. Usually it's been the defense. That's been the area that's suffering. But then when it comes to the draft and free agency and things like that, they don't really put those assets towards defense. They, they you know, they'll get some, some new toys on offense and, and, and do things that way. And But this offseason with uh, the two defensive linemen, D.J. Swearinger, Jack, Zach Brown, and, uh, you know, six of the ten draft picks going on defense, I think that, you know, they, they have done, you know, at least in this part of it, you know, we don't know how it'll turn out to get on the field, but at least so far they've done what they set out to do, and I think that's a, that's a, a, a step in a positive direction. When you look, and we'll talk about the draft picks themselves in, in just a second, but just some bigger picture stuff first. When you look at what's next for this team, uh, obviously the general manager vacancy is still there, and they, they said they'd wait till after the draft. Do you think that is the next step in the process, and then that new general manager gets involved in, in hopefully signing Kirk Cousins long-term or whatever those negotiations are, or do those things kind of happen separate from each other? Yeah, I, I think they're they're almost separate. I, I, think, I think a new GM will come prior to Cousins getting re-signed because, I, I, you know, if that happens July 15th, you know, it, it would, it, that's probably about the earliest that it would happen by that deadline. And I, I, I get a feeling this might carry out until, uh, you know, in, until next free agency period to see how this, this ultimately turns out. But, uh, and, you know, of course, with money like that, you know, the, te- the, the team president, Bruce Allen, the, the owner Dan Snyder, they're always going to be involved in, in things like that. So, um, but you know, I think they they do need it. Uh, you know, they do need a new a, a GM. You know, they need somebody in that job. Whether they move up Scott Campbell, Doug Williams, which is kind of the chatter right now as to what they might do, and uh, you know, and, and then then take it from there. Rich Tandler of CSN Mid Atlantic with me, Craig Hoffman here on the fan. This is. The Hoffman Show. All right, let's talk about the players themselves. Um, Jonathan Allen, Ryan Anderson, two first, uh, first and second round picks out of Alabama. You think both of those guys are starters day one for this team? Well, I, I'm not sure if if they'll start. Uh, you know, I, I think Allen has a very good chance of, of doing so, but I think from day one, which is the, the important thing, is from day one they'll be playing. 60, 70% of the snaps, and, and that's what we're going to They will be heavily involved if they're not in there for the first snap. Uh, then you look at the third-round pick, Fabian Moreau. is an interesting guy. Um, some of the athletic testing, he is super elite, some not quite as much, but he did have that torn pectoral muscle uh, on his pro day. Are you kind of surprised that they went that early third round for a guy that may not be ready this season, or do you think the roster's at a point where they can they can sustain a pick like that? Yeah, I, I think a cornerback, I think they, they can at least, you know, I, I would expect he'd be ready sometime in September or October, um, you know, at least ready to get on the field and contribute. But, you know, they have Norman, they have Breland, they have Kendall Fuller, they have uh, Quentin Dunbar. So it's not like they need somebody that they can get groomed quickly and get in there right away. So I think that's a a worthwhile gamble. And, you know, that, that kind of injury, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but it does not 
seem like it'll be a, a, a chronic kind of thing. It, it's, you know, something it was like a knee, it's like an ACL or something like that, where, you know, you really need a season, you know, you need a long time to recover, and then you need a season to on the field to really get up to speed. It's nothing like that. I, so I think that's a, that's a good gamble. I think he'll be fine. Yeah, we'll see uh, if they he winds up on, on Pup or anything like that. He'll obviously miss some time here uh, in the offseason program. The other interesting, uh, really interesting pick in terms of a guy who might contribute uh, immediately is Samaj P. Ryan out of Oklahoma, the running back. He's just a big bruiser. And I, I think we all thought they'd probably go running back. I don't know. We were all sure what kind of running back that would be. But now that we know it's that big bruiser, first, second down kind of guy who might wind up competing even with Rob Kelly for the starting job, what does that mean for the rest of the running backs on the roster? Well, I, I think I think if Matt Jones wasn't already in trouble uh, before this pick, I think I think he certainly is now. I, you know, it was notable uh, with the reporters in in, uh, in Arizona at the owners' meetings uh, last month that you know that Jay Gruden went through the running backs and like forgot Matt Jones, and then when asked about him, he said he gave his cursory, "Oh yeah, he's on the roster." Kind of a kind of answer. So I think Jones was in trouble anyway. But you know, even a guy, you know, Matt Brown, who was the backup running back, classed some in preseason, had a long run against the Bears in the in the last, next to last game of the season in a in a mop up role. You know, I think uh, you know, I don't you don't I think you keep three backs usually, and you've got you know you've got uh, Rob Kelly, Chris Thompson, and uh, then you know certainly uh, Sunday is going to. Uh, is going to be on there, so I think Mac Brown might uh, might be looking around too. Yeah, we'll see. He was helpful on special teams last year, and he's shown a ton of potential. But there's just so many roster spots. Then of of the other picks, Nicholson, Sprinkle, Roulier, uh, Davis, Harvey Clemens, Holsey. Is there one of those guys that you think has a chance to maybe contribute earlier, maybe as soon as this season that 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 won't get as much buzz, and then all of a sudden we're going to look up and be like, oh, that was that was the steal. Yeah, well, I think Sprinkle could help, even though, you know, you've obviously got Jordan Reed, you've got Vernon Davis, but, you know, last year they lined up Ty and Secchi when they needed a third third tight end. A uh, year before it was Tom Compton, uh, an offensive tackle. You know, that's that that's fine, but, you know, you all, it also makes it a lot easier to, to defend when you really only have four eligible receivers on the field. You know, you, know, you just don't have to worry about that guy catching a pass. They can get Sprinkle. In that blocking role, you know, a guy who's not going to catch, you know, 50 passes, but if you can catch 25 or 30, you know, sneak out of there every once in a while and just make the, be somebody the defense has to pay attention to, I think, uh, I think he can help. And, uh, Robert Davis, another, another tall receiver. They're, they just keep on bringing him in there. You know, I, th- I think Ryan Grant is probably on the bubble, even though the coaches love his work ethic. He just hasn't produced on the field. Now, I think Davis, again, he can be a guy who could be in there on special teams. And, uh, if he can contribute, uh, you know, a dozen, 15, 20 catches during the course of the season, I think, uh, that would be a big plus. When you look at Jonathan Allen, the reason you take him is obvious. The talent is overwhelming. What he's able to produce in Alabama was overwhelming as part of one of the best defenses we've seen in college football in the last decade. But what specifically, like we just hear, oh, the shoulders can be a problem. There might be some arthritis down the road. From from a more specific standpoint, do you have any understanding in what the Redskins think could be the trouble there and how they go about preventing it? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's also, in addition to the shoulder, but, but again, nothing that I've, you know, obviously 
you know, not everybody, a lot of people speculate without actually having examined him, which is, uh, which is hard to do. But, you know, I, expe- it, I expect you to be a doctor, Rich. I'm sorry. I need you, I need you to get yeah, that medical okay. degree right away. I'm working on that at night, night course at the university. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> along with my law degree, which you need also. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, exactly. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think there was just, man, I, you know, some of it, I think, you know, the way Jay explained it, you know, putting his, putting that, that, that spin on it, you know, I think the three quarterbacks, going in the top, what, is it, what was it, 10, 12 picks? Yep. And I think that helped push them back. You had a John Ross going there. Who really, you know, a lot of people, despite his speed, a lot of people didn't expect him to go, go that high. So I think you had maybe half a dozen or so guys who kind of got pushed up in the first round. Highly, a, very, a lot of offense there in the first, first half of the draft. So I think that just slid him back. You know, and then there is still, and I don't know how this real this is, among the you know the the GM slash scouting community, you know, but just the idea that Alabama defenders look a whole lot better at Alabama than they do when they come to the NFL. But uh, you know, I, I think Allen stood out enough on his own to uh, to overcome that. But you know, you, we don't know won't know until uh, they get him out there in Burgundy and Gold and see what he can do. Yeah, obviously the Redskins hoping that's not the case because they drafted two of them with their first two picks. Uh, when Now you have the 10 players on the roster, which I thought you had a great note too, by the way, this morning on Twitter. And you can follow Rich on Twitter at Rich underscore Tandler CSN. That the, part of the reason the Redskins have the fewest undrafted free agents in the league is because the way they've constructed the roster so far. They have 75 players drafted 10. That leaves only five spots on a 90-man roster. And they did uh, bring in a couple of guys yesterday. So when you look at all the the new 15 new players, the what they've done in this offseason, what do you think is the biggest need for this team moving forward? And, and how would they go about solving it before next season? Or is it just going to be a weakness going into the year? You know, surprise, surprise, nose tackle. You know, yeah. they, there were a couple of guys there in, in the late rounds who I think could could, could have stepped in. A guy, kid from USC, Stevie. I can't pronounce your last name, Stevie. I'm sorry. But he was taking a few picks before one of the Redskins picks. You know, he's, uh, you know, he's like, I think, 6'1", 330, something like that. Jeez. But some, somebody like that, to, you know, to plug the middle. But, you know, we asked uh, Jay about that last night. You know, he said, he said between Phil Taylor and Joey and Boo and A.J. Francis and Mad Eye and I, they would find, you know, Jim Tom Sula would, would find them a nose tackle. But, I, you know, until, you know, I see that guy, oh, and he has to say McGee played some nose tackle in, uh, in Oakland also. So he could, he's a possibility as well. So, you know, I still look at the roster. I still don't see a guy who I think is a is a solid nose tackle. And I think that's for the eighth straight season since they've gone to the three four. <laughs> I think will end up being being an issue for them. Ah, uh, some things do never change. We got to keep some stuff around for for just nostalgic purposes. Rich, appreciate the time this morning. We will talk as the off season goes. Look forward to getting back out to the park at some point soon and seeing you guys in person. Uh, be well and great job on the draft coverage. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Rich Tandler, you can follow him again on Twitter at Rich underscore Tandler CSN. And you can read his work at CSNMidAtlantic.com, which is also where you find the work of our next guest, Keely Divin. Does a lot of work covering the NBA and specifically, obviously, the Wizards. So let's talk about some of the biggest storylines going into game one. Wizards Celtics with Keely next on The Fan. 
Keely Devon is a blogger and writer for CSM Mid-Atlantic uh, and does a great job covering the Wizards this time of year. And, well, Wizards all year, but specifically locked in on the Wizards here during the playoffs. Keely, uh, good morning. How are you? I am great here at the office, ready for this game to start. Yeah, and 1 o'clock tip, it's bearing down on us. Uh, as you look at the, the all the different storylines floating around this series, whether they are more basketball-related or more trash-talk-related, what is the most interesting one to you? To me, um, I honestly think it's going to be... I think the trash talk and the basketball are actually really related. So yesterday, Wall and Beal, uh, speaking with the media, denied that they had a rivalry and denied bad blood with the Celtics. Um, Morris actually said, you know, I'm friends with Gerald Green. You know, we don't have any bad blood. It's not going to be a fight out there. And I think that's really important because they got bogged down in the trash talk last series at the Hawks, and it made the referees call it, uh, call it differently, call it tighter. And the Wizards, you know, already complaining about not getting calls, but a lot of those calls were going against them. So I think that they've taken, I mean, they might have called it a rivalry when they wore all black earlier this year, but they've clearly gotten the message that they need to back off of that in the playoffs. That's interesting because I think, especially with Wall, when he plays with an edge and it becomes personal to him, uh, he just he has a different level. Do you think there's any any risk that they try to back off too much uh, in an effort to to play nice with the referees and set the right tone and it and it costs them any of their edge? You know what? I think John Wall is all edge. John Wall is going to end up talking trash whether he says he's going to do it to the media or not. He's going to do things like call out Julio Jones and wave goodbye to Atlanta fans. Um, and I honestly think that the Wizards feel they're the better team here. Just like the Wizards insisted that there wasn't a rivalry with the Hawks, I think part of it is like they think and are confident that they're the better team and should not have a rivalry with the Celtics. Now, whether that's accurate is a completely different story. Yeah, I, it is interesting. I think this matchup, obviously the Celtics get the one seed in the regular season. Uh, the Wizards wind up at four, and that would suggest the Celtics are the better team. But the way the matchup works, I actually like this uh, for the Wizards. Uh, when you look at, at the X's and O's matchups uh, of this series, do you think they skew one way or the other? I could not agree with you more, because where are they going to hide Isaiah Thomas defensively? So I heard a really interesting stat. I was talking to one of our producers, Gary Carter. He said that of all the backcourt tandems that have scored 30 points, that have had a game scoring 30 points each in the playoffs, Wall and Beal are the only ones to have done that in a win. So where are you going to put Isaiah Thomas? He makes the offense go. You have to have him on the floor. But you can't hide him defensively. I think that's going to be a huge deal, as well as Horford. I think Horford is more, we think of him, you know, he's technically a center. But he plays more like Paul Millsap. So they're not going to have the same kind of paint presence that that the Hawks did with uh, Dwight Howard. You're going to see Gortat be a little more active. And I also think if you if Brooks has a chance to bring Mahaney back as soon as he's healthy, I know that that's not going to be today. And it's still looking really murky as to when that could happen. Um he will, because there's also a rebounding matchup to be exploited there, because the Wizards have more size. I'm totally with you on the Isaiah thing. I think uh, the Wizards and I think Cleveland have the players that they actually, where Isaiah Thomas is defensive. It's not like he's he's putrid. He just isn't real useful on that end of the floor. I'm and, pretty and sure they he have had it. the worst defensive efficiency in the NBA this year. 
Defensive stats are always fun, but it's not like you get the worst the worst defensive efficiency by being good, and it's just a bad stat. You still have to be pretty bad, even, yeah, even if exactly. even if it, you you know objective scout size might not say you're the worst. But either way, like they have the size and speed and skill combinations to really make that a problem. I agree with you, Keely Divin uh, of CSN is with me, Craig Hoffman here on the fan. The other interesting lineup thing that we didn't really see at all in the Hawks series is going super small, and they did it at times this year do you think this is a series especially if Jan Mahimi does remain out for an extended period that we could see some Markeith Morris at center perhaps I think it's possible um, I'm not sure how necessary it's going to be but the Wizards are always at their best when they're able to run the floor and score in transition and you know I think so are the Celtics in some ways so it'll be interesting to see who can get the better of that matchup if they go small um, that was such a trend last year, but you could see in the finals, which a oh, dagger to my heart, but <laughs> you could see how being able to, you know, crash the glass and get score second chance points and the rebounding advantage that Cleveland had not trying to play small ball as much with the Warriors. Um, so I think you might see the Wizards do that a little bit. Um, but again, they're, if Mahinmi's not available, I think, and it depends on how Jason Smith, um, if Jason Smith stays healthy. But, yeah, we could see some small ball. And I, I also think Marquise Morris and Jay Crowder will be a very interesting matchup, even if they don't go small. Yeah, no doubt. Crowder's a, a really, really good defender and, and a skilled enough offensive player uh, as well. So when you look at the non-marquee names, if you will, so so you take out Wall, you take out Beal, you take out Isaiah Thomas, and... Um, I guess you take out Al Horford, too. Is there is there another X-Factor player in this series that you think winds up being incredibly important and in swinging it one way or the Dude, other? Dude, yes, yes. And Avery who is Bradley. it? Okay. Avery yeah. Bradley. So Avery Bradley, to me, he's one of my favorite players in the NBA. He's an incredible defender, and he's going to give Bradley Beal a lot more problems than you know, than he faced in the Hawks series. He's going to you know contest Beal even catching the ball cleanly. Um, so I really want to see how Bradley Beal comes out um, in this first game and if he, you know, comes out swinging, comes out firing, because I think him being aggressive is going to be and drawing fouls on or from Avery Bradley is going to be really key. Bradley can also shoot from three. And I, I know he was injured for part of this year, but Bradley, I think you, you can't possibly overlook him. I also think that Ubre could be an X factor because he's had success guarding Isaiah Thomas. Um, when Wall and Beal need to be out or just to give the Wizards um, a different look. So I would, the problem though with Uber is he has to be able to guard Isaiah Thomas without fouling. Yeah, and I that's, think that's a, that's a sticking point there. Yeah, so that's we'll that's been a problem for Kelly at times during the playoffs. Just a little bit too exuberant. Um, his energy is fantastic, but it, it has to be channeled properly. Um, Keely, th- this is this is dumb that we haven't done this yet. This was fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Um, I know you got to get back to work, and 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 we'll look forward to what you produce there at csmatlantic.com. And then we'll do this again very very soon. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. We will do this again soon. You can follow Keely on Twitter. At Keely Devin CSN. That's Keely with no E at the end. So K E E L Y Devin D I V E N CSN on Twitter. All right. We keep the guest train rolling next. By the way, my other X factor uh, there would be uh, Otto Porter. If he can, because I think they might try to hide Isaiah Thomas on Otto Porter. And if he can just shoot over the top or just abuse him in the post, like advantage Wizards. But Avery Bradley, 
yeah, he's he could be a huge, huge pain in the ass in this series. Uh, we will see. Uh, coming up next, Reiner Sabin of Alabama.com. He has covered uh, the two first or the first two picks for the Redskins, Jonathan Allen and Ryan Anderson. So we will get scouting reports from Reiner and how he thinks they will translate to the pros. That's next. I'm Craig Hoffman on 1067 the fan. Craig Hoffman with you here on 1067 The Fan. Redskins go Alabama back to back in the first two rounds of the NFL draft. Ryan Anderson in the second round, Jonathan Allen in the first. So I thought to myself, who can I talk to uh, that would know about those two guys? And luckily, when I was down in Dallas, uh, there's a guy named Reiner Saban who is covering the Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News. He then took a job covering the Crimson Tide for Alabama.com, and and I can still get in contact with Reiner. And so here he is. Reiner, how are you, my friend? It's been a while. How how are things going? They're going well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a been a bit of a transition, but yeah, the uh, uh, Crimson Tide or uh, it's a it's an interesting program to cover just from the standpoint of the athletes that come out of the program. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's an interesting co- uh, program to cover from the expectations of fans too. It's it's in a category yeah. with like Kentucky basketball, and I'm not really sure what else. Uh, in terms of in terms of just insaneness, but let's talk about these two guys. Um, let's start start with the first yeah. round pick and Jonathan Allen. Um, as a college player, before we get to what you think he will be as a pro, and as I said, you covered the NFL for quite a while too. Um, but when, when you looked at Jonathan Allen in college, what was he able to do at Alabama that made him such a, a high level prospect? Well, I mean, you, you start off with just uh, the character, and uh, that was the thing that I was. Uh, looking at going into the draft was, you know, how are they going to look at Jonathan Allen? And I was thinking this guy's going to have off the chart marks, um, off, you know, uh, basically off the field character and football character and all that stuff. Because I mean, he was a, he was a very impressive person, probably the most impressive college athlete I've come across uh, in my time. Uh, uh, I covered a you know Arkansas too um, for several years, and uh, there were a few there that I was impressed with. But I mean, Jonathan Allen really jumped off the page. Uh, and then you know you get to the football stuff, and you know he would just take on you know multiple guys and be able to still get to the uh, get to the quarterback uh, with some uh, you know just he has very good technique, very disciplined guy. Goes at it very hard. I mean, it's it, he was a pretty much no brainer to me. Um, I was surprised that he fell as far as he did. Of course, he has the arthritic shoulders, but uh, I mean, I think that he's a person that any locker room in the NFL would be uh, would would want to welcome. And uh, I was really he, he was probably the most impressive player. Um, again, I've I've come across and. And all all my time covering college athletes. When you look at how he projects as a pro, like, do you think he's a ready to start day one, and b like, what do you think the ceiling is for this guy? Like, is he a, is he a Pro Bowl caliber player fairly soon in your eyes? It sounds like it. I think I think he. Uh, I mean, I think he can be, um, and uh, it just depends. I mean, you know how he's used in in that particular defense. Uh, you know, if he, you know, they move him. You know more inside. You know they keep him 
you know, the edge. I mean, obviously in a three, four, I mean, it's uh, the, the guys that work in the defensive line are generally trying to hold up guys for players, uh, you know, the, the linebackers themselves and the outside linebackers. And they tend to get all the sacks and uh, all the glorified stats and such. But, uh, you know, Jonathan Allen's again, a guy that I think can stay in the league for many, many, many years and just be, you know, one of those guys that, uh, you know, you can constantly count on from week to week uh, to give it his all. So I think I think it was a great pick for the Redskins. And, you know, similarly, I feel the same way about Ryan Anderson. I mean, I think I think he's a, um, one of the most fierce competitors I've, I've seen. And um, I really like his demeanor. Um, and uh, I think that that's a guy that plays on, with a chip on his shoulder. He's very... Um, I think he was upset a lot of the times with, uh, you know, the fact that other players were getting more, you know, publicity and, you know, rightfully so. I mean, he was making a lot of amazing plays. He led the team and, you know, with 18 and a half tackles for loss last year and was a, was a record himself. And so I, I really liked him as a, as, as a player as well. Yeah, some of the quotes from Anderson are, are just fun to read as a fan. Reiner Sabin uh, from Alabama.com is with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Let me ask you one more question about Allen, and then we'll, I'll get back to Anderson in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. but, but that shoulder uh, problem, the arthritic shoulder, what did he say about it as the year went as you guys asked him about it? And did it ever, you know, what, what kind of problems did, did the shoulders cause him while he was at Alabama? Honestly, it never really came up. I mean, in our, uh, it was kind of kept in the background. It didn't really come out until after the uh, season that he was dealing with this. Uh, and so uh, it, it didn't seem to be affect him at all, really, uh, throughout the year. Uh, he was able to, you know, again, uh, affect games uh, from beginning to end. And, uh, I mean, I guess in the national championship game, I mean, he you know, he didn't put forth the, the kind of performance maybe that he wanted, um, you know, but the defense was also taxed in that game. I mean, they played, uh, some of them played as many as 102 snaps of the players, which is, you know, basically a game and a half. And so um, all the effectiveness of every player in that game uh, for Alabama uh, declined substantially towards the, towards the end of the game, which kind of allowed Clemson to, overtake them but yeah i think uh you know he again he fought through it which is again speaks to his you know level of dedication and uh will and i think that will translate well to the nfl then as you mentioned ryan anderson incredible competitor um inc- mm-hmm. just a guy that as you said chip on the shoulder i don't i don't know how else to to put that other than play, i guess plays with plays with an attitude uh that is palpable and, and seems to live uh in his football life with the attitude that way as a player on the field it seems like his versatility his ability to play run his ability to play pass uh it was really appealing and then, and then maybe a little bit of coverage ability as well when he does drop out as, as a 3-4 linebacker do you think that that 3-4 spot is exactly where he needs to be and what level do you think he can succeed in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, I thought when coming out of the draft and, you know, I I mentioned it to Phil Savage, who's the senior poll director, a former NFL general manager. He also calls the games as a, a commentator for uh, uh, Alabama. So uh, I asked him, you know, specifically, do you project him as a 3-4 outside linebacker? And he was like, yeah, I think that that's probably 
what he'll play at the next level. And uh, yeah, he didn't seem like a hand in the ground type of player. He's kind of more of that. Uh, and I, I kind of he kind of reminded me of Anthony Spencer uh, uh, with the Cowboys. And but I mean Anthony Spencer with with considerable board drive and competitiveness because I mean Anthony Spencer I remember said one season he kind of took off like uh, and and did not uh, put forth the effort and so I don't think you'll ever see that with Ryan Anderson that guy um, again really really likes football and really wants to prove himself down after down play after you know uh, series after series game after game and so I think he's one of those guys that um, again, it's going to be around the NFL for a while just because, you know, he's going to have the will to, to want to do it. And so, um, and, and he, you know, the thing is, is that he does make plays. I mean, he makes plays all the time. And, uh, it was, um, you know, it was the case in the, in the biggest moments too. Uh, I think three of the last four turnovers that Alabama created, uh, Ryan Anderson was part of uh, in the CFP, so uh, you know he'll he'll definitely uh, make an impact. I think at the NFL level, um, he'll find a way. Reiner, appreciate the time, man. Uh, continued success down there, and continued luck dealing with the crazy Alabama fans. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Great talking with you. Wrapping up the show on the fan. We give way to Nats baseball coming up at the top of the hour. Our coverage begins. And then first pitch coming up a little later this afternoon with Charlie and Dave. Dave Jagler joins me now from the park. Dave, good morning uh, and hello for the first time this season. How are you? I'm doing well, Craig. Doing well, doing well. Looking forward to the game today. Of course, Nat's trying to avoid a sweep, but the bigger news right now is the loss of Adam Eaton. Uh, when when he went down after stretching out uh, on first base the other day, we I think we all knew it was bad. Is, is this? I mean, I, I guess it's. Did you think it would be this bad? Would be where I start. Uh, yes. I mean, it was. You know, you're on the air. You you don't want to speculate, and obviously they had to go through the process of examining him and and doing the MRI and the full diagnosis. But unfortunately, we we've, we've been here before watching a Nationals player go down like that, and it just brought us back to last September when Wilson Ramos kind of reacted the same way when he was leaping for that high throw and came down awkwardly on the knee and suffered his second ACL tear. So we've seen Ramos do it twice, and it just it had that look of being really bad. And uh, unfortunately, the worst was confirmed, and, and he'll... Uh, I know Mike Rizzo didn't totally uh, shut the door and, and left open the possibility of a return, but the, the general prognosis is six to nine months, and even if, if Eaton has a speedy, speedy recovery, he'd have to get back into, into baseball and playing shape. But uh, just the hope is that he can get back to, to full strength whenever he's able to do so. How would you say this injury changes the trajectory of the national season? Well, I mean, that, that's tough to say. I mean, it, right now you, you looked at it when he was in the lineup as this being potentially the best lineup in baseball. I mean, at least what they had shown in the first month, he gave them balance at the top of the lineup, being a left-handed hitter to alternate with Turner and then Harper and then Zimmerman and Murphy. I mean, there was no way for managers to match up. And if you when you look at the Nationals having you know big scoring games and, and rallies late, he was always right in the middle of it. Uh, here's a guy who put the ball in play, got on base, uh, was, a, was a speed guy on base, 
Yeah, he and Turner had a pretty good dynamic going uh, when they had played there together. So it, it's a huge loss. But, uh, you know, there's still 24 other guys on the team. And I think still this is a, a quality offensive club. You've got great starting pitching. And you've got a bullpen that, that, that you've got to figure out. So uh, I don't know that it necessarily you say, well, uh, now they, they can't win the division or they can't do this or they can't do that. It's, it's a long season. And the difference between what happens to Eaton and what happened to Ramos last year, when Ramos got injured there was a week to go in the season you couldn't do anything you couldn't make a move you couldn't i mean you, you called up and you put in pedro severino but i mean you have internal options if those don't work out you still have you still have time to reconfigure your roster before you get late in the season absolutely dave jagler of the nats radio network with me craig hoffman here on the fan uh, michael a taylor is going to be the replacement at the very least for now and i think if the nats had their way about it he would just ball out and and that would be it for the rest of the season you don't have to go make a trade uh, sure. and the guy they, they call up is the guy how, how ready do you think michael a taylor is at this point to be an everyday major league center fielder and a good one well ready i mean we, we've been that we've been here before craig i mean we've, we've seen in 2015 span went down and and taylor was was there and last year ben revere went down on opening day and taylor was there now i think taylor did a little bit better in 2015 than 2016 with his struggles combined with revere struggles they ended up moving trey turner to center field so i mean it's, it's not from lack of opportunity or experience and at least yesterday you know taylor was was, was attacking fastballs, and he had three hits. So defensively, you know he's going to be fine. This, this kid can really play center field. Let, let's see what happens with the lineup. I mean, it's interesting what Dusty has done, putting Taylor in there second, uh, both yesterday and today. I mean, I, I guess my first assumption would be that he would have hit eighth, but hitting second, if he can keep control of the strike zone and not chase pitches out of the strike zone. It's a pretty good spot to hit because if Turner's on base, you're going to get a lot of fastballs. Harper's on deck. You're not going to want to walk Michael Taylor to get to Bryce Harper. So that's that's an ideal spot to hit, to have success, more so than hitting eighth because when you're hitting eighth, pitchers tend to, to try to throw junk at you, knowing that, hey, if you don't chase it, we'll walk in and then face the pitcher. So really hitting second between Turner and Harper is easier than hitting eighth in front of the pitcher. So uh, at least early on it gives Taylor the best chance to have some success and if he can duplicate what he did yesterday and and just put the ball in play and uh, let his talent work then he'll be fine yeah hitting hitting before Bryce Harper is a blessed place to be right now he is having a fantastic start to this year after the down year last year Um, what has he said and and what have you observed about the difference in, in Bryce Harper this year versus last year as he reverts to MVP form well, I mean, just, just watching the mechanics of his stroke, I mean, his his head is still, and there's not as much jumping at the ball, if you will. When his weight goes forward and his head's moving, it's hard to hit a baseball that's moving when your head's not still. So uh, there was, I think, uh, an issue last year with uh, chasing some pitches after uh, they, they walked him a bunch in the month of May, and he, he really got out of his, his comfort zone, and the fact that he's drawn 20 walks in the month of April is a great sign, and he feels confident that the guys hitting behind him, well, if you want to walk Harper, okay, let's go face Ryan Zimmerman. Good luck with that. If you, if you want to walk Zimmerman, good good luck facing Daniel Murphy. So uh, I think Harper is just in a real good, comfortable place hitting. And uh, as long as he's able to stay in the strike zone and stay patient, then uh, then obviously he's special. Mike Rizzo spoke a little bit this morning, and he said uh, that they're comfortable with Taylor to replace Eaton. But the one area that he does want to improve 
uh, is the bullpen. That They like the depth in the personnel, but said multiple times they need to pitch better. Um, so maybe, you know, they, they if they don't, then he'd be looking to, to upgrade there. Uh, obviously, w- when you look at the bullpen, which was certainly, and especially the back end, one of the biggest questions going into the season, how would you evaluate the success of that unit uh, a month in here? Well, kind of like what, what Mike Rizzo said, it hasn't been good. The numbers are ugly. They've allowed as many home runs as the national starting pitching staff and in less than half the innings. They're averaging allowing about a home run every four innings. And, uh, I mean, on that last road trip, any bullpen issues they had, they were able to out-hit because the, the games, they were just scoring so many runs. You know, the bullpen really struggled in Colorado, but the Nationals scored so many runs, they were able to win that series three games to one. Uh, they, they actually pitched well in the Mets series and in, uh, in the last two games of the Atlanta series. So the, the potential is there. But uh, the, the, you've got to keep the ball in the ballpark. When you when you come in and you're giving up home runs as, as the bullpen collectively, that's going to be an issue. And it shows up not just, not just late in games as far as closing games when you're ahead, but look at the two games in this series, Craig. I mean, the Nationals were down 5-3 to three when Scherzer came out of the game. And the bullpen gives up two more runs to make it 7-3. Zim hits a home run to make it 7-5. And then they have the rally going before the Eaton injury kind of takes the steam out of them. Yesterday, Strasburg pitches very well, leaves trailing 3-2. to two. The bullpen gives up two home runs. Zim hits another home run. So instead of maybe that game-tying home run, it only cuts the deficit to one. So, you know, those aren't game-closing situations. But uh, obviously the bullpen contributed to that defeat yesterday because they allowed the Mets to tack on runs late. So it's a a collective um, issue right now. And for guys like Blake Trinan and Joe Blanton to sport ERAs that are in double digits at the end of the month of April, uh, you you don't figure that to, to continue. But... Uh, again, as you said, if if um, if that performance doesn't improve collectively, then I would think changes will be made. And I, they're certainly missing Coda Glover right now uh, because he was uh, really a solid piece, whether you want to put him in the seventh, eighth, or occasionally the ninth inning. Dave, always appreciate the time. We'll have to do this uh, regularly as we as we get going this season. Uh, appreciate the time as always, and I will talk to you soon. All right, you got it, Craig. That is Dave Jagler, half of our broadcast crew for the Washington Nationals, uh, of course, with Charlie Slows. Here on your flagship station for Washington Nationals Baseball, 106.7 The Fan. Craig Hoffman with you, wrapping up the show here on 106.7 The Fan. We'll bounce all over the map as we've had guests for the last hour, a couple of just other loose odds and ends uh, to end the show. Um, Something I didn't get a chance to talk about during the NFL draft coverage that we had here Thursday night. We just ran out of time. Um, as we were talking to a bunch of different people, Chris Russell and I hosting the first round, and then um, there wasn't really space for it uh, in the Facebook Live stuff we were doing because it was, it was very Redskin-centric. But um, the drafting of Gary and Conley by the Oakland Raiders is something that is, I think is worthy of discussion. And it kind of exemplifies the impossible place the NFL has put itself in because... For those unfamiliar, Gary and Conley is a cornerback from Ohio State. He's supposedly very, very good. It was a top 20 type talent um, that winds up going 24 to Oakland. And most teams probably had him off of their boards because he has been accused of rape. And that, quite obviously, is incredibly serious. And if that accusation is true, he will not only not be in the NFL, but he will be in prison for a long, long time. This happened in a Cleveland hotel, uh, the alleged incident. Uh, He vehemently denies it. 
And and it's also worth mentioning, and I put this on Twitter, and some of the responses were just so dumb and frustrating and misogynistic and um, problematic that, statistically speaking, women don't make up rape accusations because what's the point? Why would you do that? Now, the pushback, I got both of these. One, the Duke lacrosse case would beg to differ. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Go watch the, the 30 for 30 on the Duke lacrosse case and see how messed up that was um, in so many ways from beginning to end. Um, so that's that's thing one. Um, it does happen. It's just it's so beyond rare. Two is, oh, most men accused of rape aren't. Uh, about to come into a lot of money. If you want to blackmail somebody with a rape accusation, like you're messed up. That is that is crazy. But it has happened on very, very, very rare occasion. And this is exactly what Gary and Conley said. So for statistical purposes to show that I understand what I'm talking about here, like just realize this stuff doesn't happen. With that said, the NFL has put itself in a position to kind of play judge, jury, and executioner because they've got to decide, and I don't really know what the solution is here, they've got to decide what, if they believe Gary and Conley. And apparently one team that was not the Raiders even went as far as to get a certified polygraph test done and Conley passed. So whether it's evidence that they've collected, and the NFL does go have a, have a security unit that collects a lot of data and has relationships with police departments and intelligence agencies around the country, whether it's a lack of evidence, whether it's a comfort with Conley that he comes across as believable, whatever it is, the Raiders decide to take him and then taking out kind of all of the other context and just saying he, if he's convicted, he obviously will get cut and will not be available because he'll be in prison. Um, but even if he's charged the PR hit, you wonder if they have to cut him. Like to, to, it becomes a risk assessment deal where if you're right and, he, and he's being truthful and is not, or even if he's not being truthful and is not charged and is available and can play, then the Raiders just got a player that a lot of other teams would have liked to have. If they're wrong and he's lying um, and he is guilty, then all of a sudden you've forfeited your first-round pick. And so the Browns did something similar with Caleb Brantley, defensive tackle out of Florida, um, who has been charged with assault uh, for hitting a woman in a nightclub. And... I actually, a lot of people killed the Browns for doing this, but I actually liked what Sashi Brown said. Uh, The VP or the president or whatever his title is for the Browns, he's the the head, the guy in charge of the football operation uh, for the Browns, said, we may cut him, but they're in a place where if they like the player enough, then they go, we'll take him, we'll have his rights, and the chances that all of our draft picks are going to make our roster are not great anyway. So if he all of a sudden is too much of a, a PR hit, uh, which is really what these teams care about, um, then they'll cut him. 
And I like that honesty from Sashi Brown rather than saying like, oh, rather than pretending like they've got it all figured out. Nope. We're, we're going to take the rights to him. And if uh, it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. And we're okay with that. At least they're honest. And I, I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to also clean up a little bit on the ESPN stuff that I talked about earlier. Um, and just and talk about business happen. And a lot of uh, one thing I didn't touch on is the balance between opinion and, and quote unquote journalism. And basically what happened is capitalism happened. And then we talked about how the expenses went up and the income came down as cable subscribers cut, not just ESPN because these channels aren't available a la carte. They cut all cable and now ESPN's paying a lot more for the NBA and the NFL and, and the other rights, college football and such that they have. And when you look at the responsibility of a media company, they are a business, but they also have to have solid journalism. And that's where this weird balance of you look at who got cut, it's all the journalists. And everyone wants to scream about how Stephen A. Smith still has a job and is paid very handsomely for that job. And while you're not going to find a big Stephen A. Smith fan in me, like the man does have a brand. I at least get it. He gets to scream about old bad old beef jerky. When when your your personalities have their own endorsements outside of your business, outside of the ones that are handed to them through their specific shows, like that's worth money. He has value. And so while clearly I would rather see Mark Stein still have a, a job reporting on the NBA than Stephen A's first take show, which I don't watch. A lot of people are not that way. A lot of people don't care about the journalism, and a lot of people do, clearly. It's why he's paid handsomely uh, and has been retained and why other networks would happily sign him up if he became available, why Stephen A still has his job. And so that ballot, but, but then it becomes the opinions have to be based on some factual something, and that's where the journalism becomes important. And at what point do you have to look at your profit margins and say, our profit margins may need to come down because we need to save our soul. And I'm not saying this just for ESPN, but this is, this is the struggle that every media company is fighting over the next decade as the, as the way we consume media changes. So just food for thought there uh, on that. Nationals baseball coming up next. Uh, our coverage beginning. And the starting lineup is driven by Lindsay Cadillac in Alexandria for DC's other all-star lineup. Visit Lindsay Cadillac and check out the all-new CT6, setting a new standard in luxury sedans. Lindsay Cadillac, where luxury started. You'll love it at Lindsay. For the Nationals today, Trey Turner hits leadoff, bats short, or hits leadoff, plays shortstop in the field. He's not batting shortstop. Watch him now go 0 for 4 with four ground outs to short. Then he would be batting shortstop. I'm a professional sports talker. Michael A. Taylor uh, batting second, playing center field. Bryce Harper third and right. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman cleanup at first base. Daniel Murphy plays second, hits fifth. Anthony Rendon sixth, plays third. Jason Worthson left. He bats seventh. Then Matt Wieters behind the plate, batting eighth. And Joe Ross gets the start, batting ninth. For the New York Metropolitans baseball franchise, Michael Conforto's in left. Jose Reyes at short. Jay Bruce right field. Neil Walker second and bats cleanup. Fifth, Curtis Granderson playing center. T.J. Rivera at first base. 
Uh, Rivera also, different Rivera. Who's R. Rivera? Renee, no. Do we yeah, know? Renee. Is that, no, a- Renee, Renee Reynolds plays third, no, and, and he's batting eighth, and Cindergaard's on the mound batting ninth. The catcher is R. R. Rivera in front of me, and I, I know, like, I, look, my baseball's not my strongest, and this is like when I used to tease Vic. It's, it's Renee Rivera. And then it's Renee Reynolds, too. They yes, two Renees. Byron just conferred, or confirmed. They have two Renees in their starting lineup? Matt Reynolds. Oh, well, that didn't copy and paste correctly. Apparently why not. Sometimes I talk about stuff where I know what I'm talking about, and sometimes I read. And the the when, Mets should really not put a picture of the starting lineup on their Twitter page. They should be more like the Nationals so that you can copy the whole thing and paste it. I just didn't want to go Rivera, Rivera, because then people were going to get confused. And now they're more confused, and I look like a dumbass. And that's our show. Nats Insider next. Yes. All right. And then, and then Byron Charlie, will have the correct lineup. Byron, who's much better on baseball. I did some good football and basketball stuff today, and I'm proud of it. Uh, Byron Kerr's got Nats Insider next. He's got your baseball because I clearly don't. Goodbye. I'm a dope. But that's my podcast, and I appreciate you listening to it. My other podcast is much smarter because there's other people on it. Lorenzo Alexander and Chris Gores, we do the Train with the Best podcast. We're going to record Tuesday this week, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes to that and check that out there. Be back on the radio Sunday, 9 a.m. to 1, then the Best of podcast will post shortly after. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, tweet me at Craig Hoffman. The website is hoffmanshow.com. That is all I have to say, and clearly I've probably said too much. Goodbye. Goodbye.